People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Welcome, Defenders of Democracy. This is Joy Silver, and I have a voice, and I'm going to use it. And I encourage all of you to use yours, too, especially when it comes time for voting, because your vote is your voice. And today we have with us, and I'm very excited about this particular guest, Pat Leach. She is with the Courageous Resistance Indivisible of the Desert African Immigration Initiative. And her dedication to African immigration is to assist people through empowerment. She says it's important to encourage through finding the resources they need to succeed, whether in detention, whether they're asylum seekers struggling in the USA, or deported and trying to find safety. Welcome, Pat Legion. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're going to talk about the real deal today, and that is the results of the U.S. African immigration policy. And I know you have some thoughts on that, and you are fresh back from your traveling to Africa. First of all, tell me, Pat, what got you interested in this subject of African immigration in the first place? Actually, because I only speak English and I couldn't help very much with uh, Spanish speakers at the border, I fell into working with Cameroonian um, immigrants and then other African countries. So it grew from one person to literally probably around a thousand people. What is it that you have been able to do for those immigrants that have come to the United States? I help them with, when they're in detention, I started with letter writing and would start with visitation, but that ended pretty quickly in letter writing and helping them find lawyers, sponsors, encouraging them, trying to help them stay positive in a very racist society, as many of them were confined in Louisiana and Texas. And then when they started actually getting out, even though they might not have had asylum, many of them were in really precarious positions. So they needed health care, they needed housing, they needed food. I think a lot of them ended up being on the streets. And as, as empowering them, it's leading them to the resources so they can help themselves. Because I think many of the organizations that help them parent them. And I really believe that they're adults and they've come through a really long, difficult situation, both back at home and, and on the way here. And so it's really important that they are allowed to be empowered so they take care of themselves so that they can hold their heads up and, and feel like they are adults. Let me get into this a little more deeply from your own personal experience here. What happens, and you met the African immigrants, and did you meet them in the borders at Mexico, or where did you first come in contact with African uh, immigrants? Uh, in detention. During the Trump years, they were put in detention and had very little chance of getting asylum. Here in California, actually, they got more asylum, depending on the judges. One of the things we have to realize is that the immigration judges work under the Justice Department, not the judicial branch of the government, and they were largely appointed by Trump. And those same judges are still working today. They have 
like a 96, 97% rejection rate of asylum. Here in California, we like, fortunately have uh, more positive judges, and uh, so they got asylum quicker. So my outreach became Louisiana and Texas because no one was really encouraging them and helping them. And did you actually visit in those states, or did you visit the, those detainees or, or those who were in detention here in California? I visited in California, and many of them came to my house. And that's where I started learning about their stories. And, and it came to the conclusion that in order to get asylum here, you practically had to be dead, killed in your own country. I learned about the PTSD that exists from uh, making the journey through Central America. And then uh, a lot of what I did, uh, there, there's a way of calling in to the detention center and doing a visual call. And during detention, I was able to take pictures of people who had been tortured, as well as listen to their stories before they left. And, and so, yeah, a lot of it was not face-to-face. Some people I just recently, that were deported, I just recently met while I was in Cameroon. Oh, hold on. Um, we're going to get to that part, because I, I just want to jump back a little bit, because you opened your home to people you certainly didn't know, and that's a whole experience. I want you to talk a little bit about the cultural differences just by opening your home. But also, what's the status of LGBT people in these African countries that send immigrants or the immigrants that tried to get into the United States and are still trying to get in? Well, for LGBTQ people, it's death. It's absolutely death. And I just talked to a friend of mine who I work closely with. He's an asylum seeker from Ghana. And he said not only is it death to the LGBT people, it is also death to anyone that helps them. So they have to get out. And when they get to the, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. They, they should get asylum. Everybody knows. It's, it, it's not like you have to know the history of a country to know that that is death in many countries. That's absolutely death. And I actually have one asylum seeker who I keep in touch with. He's in New York. And they didn't think he was gay enough. I, I'm like, how can, how can you reject his story? The frustration must be yeah. just un, unpalpable. Let me ask you something, because I just want to get back to that place. So what drove your decision to open your home, and what were some of the cultural differences and issues and challenges that you had to handle by opening your home for basically uh, people who were in a desperate situation and certainly in need? I don't know. For me, it was it was a, a simple decision. I was brought up that I was given much in my life and that I owed it to the world to give back as, as being, I guess, being grateful for, for my life. And one of the most interesting times was that I had a woman. I had two transgender people and at the same time and working out who slept where was, you know, more difficult <laughs> because the, the from Imperial because I was the only woman that came to visit, I think the transgender people were kept with the men, and they were just so glad to see a woman that we could talk about hair and nails with. <laughs> it was a really, really positive experience, and they they had suffered so much in, in Mexico with gangs, and, you know, it was just a horrible experience for, for all of them. Are you saying that transgender women were kept in the same detention centers with the men? Yes because they were considered men to ice and you know to me they were she's uh, wow this is <laughs> and, frightening and, and they were put in the same subdivision you know where they would have been in the same cell block they were spread out one one uh, Auto, uh, a, a sweet 
person. She said I was always in the hole, which I finally learned was isolation. And that's like a very small room where you're just put in there and is widely used. And that's an imperial. And it's even worse, I'm sure, in other detention centers. They should all be closed. I mean, they... (laughs) So They're not criminals. People are asylum seekers. They're not criminals. They shouldn't be jailed. Right. Now, when you had your home open, and, and so you had to adjust to different ways of living, different ideas of how to live in homes, of food, of culture. What were some of the features of that that uh, you learned from or you had challenges with or you found very positive? I don't know. I, we didn't have any challenges. They were so happy to get a a real meal. I mean, you respected their dietary restrictions, which is not a problem. There really weren't any real challenges. I mean, the the Muslims somehow in my second bedroom is really small, found a way to do their prayers. And I don't know, which I think it was just listening to them, but it might be just sort of my nature and Gary's nature that it's, it's a matter of welcoming people and listening to them and knowing what their story is and loving them. So there was a, a, an array of um, basically of Christians and Muslims or basically Muslims. And was this basically ca- Cameroonians that you had in your home? Oh, no, no. I, I, I never turn anyone down. And, and I had Spanish speakers and we used Google Translate to uh, manage through it. I did, I did learn from them later that the most important thing I gave them was a real toothbrush. <laughs> that they were given these baby toothbrushes in uh, in detention where they, you know, they couldn't brush their whole mouth well. So <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of funny because, I, you know, I'd give them deodorant and shampoo and and all those things. I mean, the shampoo that they had or in, in detention dried out their hair so that uh, it hurt, you know. They didn't have any oils for their hair. So it was interesting from that standpoint, but it's funny that the toothbrush was the outstanding item to hand to them. You have a background in healthcare, is that true? Yes. So what was the condition of people's health in detention and also those who you welcomed into your home? I think that their biggest problem was, was mental health because of living in fear all that time. So I think mental health was probably their their biggest problem they had you know, some anger, but they were so glad to be out and be able to take a walk and move about freely because many of them were so insulted by the fact that we put them in jail. They had been taught that this country was so wonderful and welcoming and and everything from birth. And so it was shocking to them what, what happened to them. And I asked one if knowing what he knew today, if he would still come. And he said, I had to understand that they were taught this from birth. So, yeah, I guess they would have still come, but but they were still offended and, and should be offended. We should all be offended. Unbelievable. Is there a policy for African immigration? A policy directly for, no, because they they wouldn't make that a policy because that would be considered racist. But is the system racist? Yes, it absolutely is. Because of the judges that Trump selected, they get much higher bonds. Look at how easily we bring in uh, people from Europe, which I'm glad they're bringing in Ukrainian people. But these people also have gone through death threats and, you know, wars and, and lots of things like that. So you can definitely see how it's affecting the policy through how easily or how difficult or what the challenges are about getting asylum in this country or being a refugee here. Let's take a leap now. What made you decide to travel to Africa? 
Well, after working with Africans for five years or four years, yeah, five years, six years, uh, I was invited actually to go there on a cultural exchange, which kind of switched because the people wanted me to go to places that the State Department said I cannot go. And they weren't happy with that, but I, I definitely wanted to survive the trip. I switched around to people that I know because I have worked with NGOs in Cameroon to help deported people, and I had quite a few contacts there. Within, they brought some internally displaced people, children, to meet with us and into a safer place, not necessarily a safe place. But I also met with the people that were deported that came to see us my daughter and I, and met with us, and I, I, I just, I had lots of people to meet with, and did, and one of the most frightening was uh, Franklin, who was uh, deported, he was a gendarme, and he left his post and, and came to the U.S., he was deported back there, he was put in jail, he had a very high bond, a bunch of people that I was involved with raised the bond money, and we finally got him out, but he had to go back into the gendarmes, uh, which is the police military thing, and when he came to see me at somebody's house that, that I know, two gendarmes came with him. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that it was kind of scary. Evidently, him having contact with me keeps him safer, but they were very curious about me and what I was doing and who I was. It was an enlightening experience and, and a very, I, I can't describe to you how scary it was and how scary their lives are. He works seven days a week, and he's under watch constantly. What countries were you able to visit, and what countries were you not able to visit? Well, I visited Cameroon. Um, I cannot visit DRC, which I also work with a group of people there. I did not visit Nigeria. That would not have been a safe place right now. It's, It's really an upheaval. So basically, I visited Cameroon, figuring that I can get a a microcosm of what is happening in the countries where people are running from. I am now able to be witness in people's cases because I know exactly what is happening to people. And then we went to Kenya, which was more of a vacation. But I did learn about Kenya and how it has moved forward. And I do have a a lawyer who is here getting asylum from Kenya. Why do people want to leave Cameroon? Basically because the government and the rebels are killing off all of the young men. If you're not part of the government, then you're part of the rebels. So the English speakers, there's hatred of the English speakers. And uh, so you have the French side and the English side. And it's all between the way that the English speakers cannot get jobs, the way that they're they're treated. They must, they, they do tend to learn French, so they're bilingual, but they know who is who by the accent, just like we know a southerner from a northerner, right? The accent thing. It's a matter of death. I met a young lady who is in Douala, and she's from the northwest. She does not speak French. Her parents were killed and her house was burned. And her, She and her siblings escaped all different directions. She can't find her siblings. And so she's alone in Douala with nothing. So that's what they're escaping. They're, you know, it's death. The rebels shoot up the schools, but the military comes in disguised as rebels and does the same thing. So you don't really know who your enemy is. Mm. What is the status of women and what's happening to women in these countries? Rape, constantly. Every one of these countries, I just read an article about DRC where people were coming home from work, they trap them all, and they, they take great pride in raping all the women. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's, it's just, 
it's it's really really sad and the women coming across I keep telling them don't come along make sure that you have some men with you to protect you um, because um, you know the people in Central America will also rape all the women I, I've heard horrible tales tell our listeners what is DRC Oh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is to me a real joke, is there's nothing democratic about it. It's a huge country. Again, Africa is filled with raw materials, resources, gold, diamond, lithium, all the minerals. Uh, They grow enormous amounts of food. There's no reason why Africa can't throw off this vestige of colonialism and, and become a hugely great group of nations and that what they have gotten trapped in is with the French for instance Macron was down in Cameroon as he supports this guy that has been president for 40 years people would say to me I don't remember ever having any other president in my whole life and he lined his pockets with money and there's no infrastructure there's no roads there's no sidewalks I mean and this is a French city I was in and and it was horrible horrible it takes hours to get anywhere and so no money i was really happy for socialism in the united states (laughs) i thought oh we're back (laughs) right comparatively this is a true and unabashed capitalism it sounds like almost to the fashion well it sounds fascist if there was no president for 40 years other than one person i think we're looking at an authoritarian government what is at the root of all of this you say it's from the colonization so we're is that true both in Cameroon and um, the Congo and Kenya as well? Is that at the root of this disruption? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I've been reading a lot of history books about all these different countries, mainly because I feel like I must be educated enough to help them uh, with the political activism, which I push them to do. One person said to me, the, the countries where the French ruled are in much worse shape than the ones that the, that the English ruled. The English did more to help promote a real democracy when they left. It's not like across the board this solution, but Kenya, I believe, was English, and Cameroon obviously was French, although there was an English section which was aligned with Nigeria. Nigeria's problem is a Boko Haram. And, you know, that's just a huge problem around the Chad Basin. Anyway, the English did a better job of turning over their governments than the French. The French still control all the money in Cameroon. It's kept in the treasury in France. So I don't think it's an independent country. You're right about Kenya because uh, I've certainly out of Africa was about Kenya and the coffee plantations, actually. So, yes, you, you are correct about the particular colonization. But what part does the United States play in all of this, from your perspective, from what you've been able to see now? I believe that the United States looks out for its own best interest. And, and just like in Central America, the United States really kind of likes it when you don't have a real democracy. That's in their best interest to have a dictator that they can give money to and control. And so that's kind of an eye-opener to me that was brought up in the generation about how wonderful we are. We're not all that wonderful. And we don't really feed democracy. We don't really feed the freedom. We feed the head guy who's in control because of the resources of each of these countries. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I... I think that's the role that the United States plays. I think I'll be writing some letters concerning that. 
what if, what why does the United States and and you you talked about this but when the immigrants do come here and they're detained why would the United States deport some of the immigrants back to their countries of origin and does that generally happen uh, during the Trump era it absolutely generally happened he made an agreement I know for instance uh, Trump made an agreement with Maya the president of uh, Cameroon that they would all be safe, and they're not safe. One of the young men who, who visited me was left and was stopped by the uh, gendarmes, and he saw that when they looked him up on their phones, that they had a picture of him when he was released from deportation flight. So they told him he better go into hiding, and because if they ever saw him again, they would put him in jail. So that's what we did, and what we continue to do Although, obviously, we gave TPS to Cameroon, but we, we just deported people to DRC, and they go to jail there. I, I have some that did not because we got them met at the airport, but we're still deporting. It's not as bad as it was under Trump. Immigration, uh, we've demonized immigrants, and, and we've demonized black immigrants more than white ones. If anyone who's listening wants to be part of the African Immigration Initiative or can send money or can be a sponsor or even visit families, how would they get in touch with you, Pat? By my email. I'm seriously looking for someone who's willing to do some research on different kinds of visas, educational visas and medical visas to come to the U.S. because I just clearly I'm spread pretty thin. And, you know, people that are willing to visit do a lot of what I do is just really I'm a large storehouse of information that I give out freely. And, you know, just to do any kind of research, you know, about my electronics thing, which serves African countries as well as immigrants here trying to get computers and phones to people so they can take courses so they can do their uh, forms online for uh, USCIS. That's a huge drive. Well, Pat, how can they get in touch with you? What email address can they reach you? Yes, it's uh, patleach2 at yahoo.com, and it's P-A-T-L-E-A-C-H, number two, at yahoo.com. And call my number, 408-781-1711. Thank you, Pat, and thank you for your dedication, Pat Leach, talking about the real deal on the U.S. immigration policy. And this has been Joy Silver with Outspoken at Radio 111. And remember, stand up, fight back, because this is what democracy looks like.